the Intersection Education Podcast. Schools are the place where different institutions, services, and societal influences meet. In other words, they're at the intersection of children's lives. In the Intersection Education Podcast, we speak with insiders and outsiders of the education world to try to gain new insight and improve our schools. Hello and welcome to this edition of the Intersection Education Podcast. I'm your host, Corey Haley. My conversation today is with Dr. Valen S. Jordan, Assistant Professor of Diversity Education at University of Louisiana at Lafayette. Dr. Jordan believes in the strong commitments of teachers to understanding their narratives as raced, classed, gendered people in order to move the social justice needed. She has committed her areas of focus to curriculum theory, social justice, education, and teacher identity. Dr. Jordan has worked in the field of education for over 10 years, including teaching third and fourth grade special education and education consulting. If you like what you're hearing, connect with Intersection Education. You can go to our website, intersectioneducation.com, or follow us on Twitter at Intersection Ed. We really appreciate it when you rate us on iTunes and leave a review. Here's my conversation with Dr. Valen S. Jordan. Well, hello, Dr. Jordan. How are you today? I'm doing well, Corey. How are you? I'm excellent. I want to thank you so much for joining us today. Um, Let's get into it and and maybe talk about how you first became a teacher. What were some of the experiences that you had that led you to the teaching profession? Yeah. um, Well, so I find that question interesting because oftentimes the way I answer it is it happened by accident. Um, It wasn't something that I thought I was going to do. Uh, during my, I didn't major in education. I was alternatively certified. Um, and I went through a route called New York City Teaching Fellows. So oftentimes people who are alternatively certified catch a bad rap. Um, often we'll hear about teachers who went through Teach for America and that they do their two years and then they leave. Um, and so for me, teaching sort of, I became a teacher once I entered the classroom, right? It wasn't something that I had planned out for myself. Mm-hmm. Um, so this work for me now has sort of snowballed and spiraled into something bigger and more magnificent than I assumed it to be when I first began. That's right. Now, um, some people up here in Canada, because we don't have a program like that, don't don't really know about mm-hmm. Teach for America. Do you want to give me just a, a snapshot, maybe the 30-second, what is Teach for America? Um, yeah, and maybe how uh, you so came to find it? Yeah, so I won't speak to Teach for America okay. because I didn't go through a Teach for America route. I went okay. through what was called New York City Teaching Fellows. Okay. Um, also an alternative certification route. So okay. um, in your undergrad days or even if you've already uh, worked and you're a professional and you decide, you know, I don't want to do this this work that I'm doing in finance anymore. I want to go and become a teacher. It's mm-hmm. a fast track to becoming a teacher where you don't have to go through four years of undergrad again to get mm-hmm. your degree in either elementary ed, early childhood, secondary education. Um, you essentially take all the same tests and you pass them, right? So essentially, are you smart enough to pass them? You can become licensed as a teacher. You can get your trans B certification 
in New York City, that's what it's called at least, transitional yeah. certification. And then through a transitional certification, you go through your master's and you get your master's in education and there becomes you as a teacher. So all alternative certification programs are different. So Teach for America is one in which you don't actually have to complete uh, a master's program um, in its early iterations of Teach for America. At least you didn't have to complete a master's program in order to get your certification. Right. Whereas the program that I went through, which is part of the new teacher project, you did. Yeah, yeah those are, like I said, it's interesting. I, I know that some people in Canada are, like I said, a bit perplexed by this, but... Um, yeah, thanks for, for doing that. Now, yep. what uh, what grades, what levels did you teach? I taught third and fourth grade special ed. Nice. Now, you did that for a while. What were some of the reasons that you transitioned from the classroom to academia and working in a university? Yeah, so um, I taught for five years. Um, and the area I taught in... Um, is East Harlem, New York. So it's a predominantly, firstly, it's a predominantly Latino area and then uh, predominantly black or mostly black after that. Um, and most of the teachers that I worked with um, and others that I encountered at districts and citywide professional developments were predominantly white women. And the teachers I encountered would oftentimes make statements or indicate that they were teaching from a place or a position that made sense to them, not necessarily a place that made sense to their predominantly Latino classroom students. Mm -hmm. Um, They were educating from a place of privilege and quote unquote domination where like their narratives and their ideologies led um, versus the perspective or the lens that these students of color were bringing into the classroom. Right. And so the mismatch that existed was often thick. Um, And so I wanted, as I was progressed through my five years of, being a classroom teacher was something that I really wanted to explore more. Um, and so through academia research, sort of theorizing, understanding the ways in which quote unquote school is understood from a, a privileged space versus a place from where the, those who are typically voiceless don't necessarily have a way to insert themselves and be able to explain or think about school and education the way it has meaning for them. Right. Now, I mean, let's take that thought. Um, That must have been, did you find it difficult? Because uh, if we say, you know, the, where you were teaching in Harlem, um, Latina population, high concentration of white teachers. (laughs) I was just wondering when you walked into now your university, so you're back at the other side of a student, did you find that there was a disconnect between your needs or the what you were looking for in education, did you say? Did you feel like you fit in when you went on to do your educational doctorate, investigating this whole concept of, you know, education that fits or doesn't fit their students? Um, so there's a lot of research out there about sort of the ways in which whiteness prevails in schools or dominant narratives prevail in schools. So, so the dominant narrative doesn't ever suit me, right? Like the dominant narrative is used to silence me. Whereas as a black woman, I'm, I will never fit what's understood or part of the dominant narrative. Mm -hmm. Right. And so what I work towards or what I'm working to help pre-service teachers understand is that when we are constantly inserting a dominant narrative or saying that students are supposed to live up to a particular ideology or the ways in which 
race, class, gender, all these, the, the ways in which domination or oppression are outlined, when we're expecting for kids of color, students of color to live up to that, we're still continuing to silence them, right? Because we're not allowing for their experiences and what they have sort of socio-politicized about their communities to exist in the classroom. We're making it seem as if those narratives are not important, important that the counter narrative is not important. Now, do you think that it, this is contributing to to what we see as as maybe the tension in the United States? So, I think it's not only in the United States. I think we see around the world we see a bit more tension around race, gender, inclusiveness. Um, do you think that this idea of narrative and counter narrative um, uh, c- contributes to that? And do you think that we have a role in the educational context? To, what is our role in the educational context that you see to to perhaps turn that around? Yeah, so it's what's com- what's misunderstood, right? It's the it's what we leave undiscussed. What we say and to and tell people don't talk about, mm-hmm. right? Don't talk about sexuality. Don't talk about class. Don't talk about race. They're seen as taboo topics. Now, oftentimes what I find with students, with my pre-service teachers at least, they're more than comfortable to talk about class, right? Like it's an easy way to sort of say like, well, either you have money or you don't, and that's the reason for why things happen. But when you start to dig a little bit deeper into that, right, and sort of come to understand the socio-historical markers of how class has even been stratified in an American context and across the, the world, who is, what voices are left out and who are those people? What do they typically look like? Do they share phenotypic markers with you? If not, why? And then if you start to think about class from that perspective of like it having sort of racial overlay, then all of a sudden it becomes a, ooh, let's not talk about that, mm. right? Or you'll often hear teachers and a lot of people say, I'm colorblind. I don't see it. I don't see color. Those things don't matter to me. You're a person. And I often say to people, well, when you tell me that you're colorblind and, you know, no one's in theory colorblind, um, in theory, of course, if you tell me you can't see the most salient feature of my body, you're telling me that you don't see me and that you don't see or understand that I have very different experiences from you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and that's hard, right? Like, it's hard for us to ask teachers to, to separate what they understand about how to quote unquote do school, right? Uh, you walk in, you stand in the line, you sit and behave in a particular way, you answer questions in a certain way. Um, it's hard to ask teachers to not do that and to say to students, let's like talk about or socio-politicize our space, our community. Um, something that I don't know if you heard about this, but here and we talk about Chicago often here in the States. We talk about Chicago having uh, a lot of issues with gang violence and other sorts of things. And on the news this morning, they talked about how over the weekend there were five dozen murders. Oof. That's a lot, right? Like that's a lot of people to, to, to no longer exist in like mm-hmm. particular pockets of Chicago. But how often are those teachers going into those schools where that those events are happening and asking their students to really think about it, to ask those students to use their voice 
to insert themselves in like a political conversation, to insert themselves into, you know, the experience that they're having, that they're seeing, right? Mm -hmm. We would often like to say, we just ignore it, that we don't pay attention to it. But if we're not using those students' narratives, if we're not using those students' experiences, then we are leaving them out of the the education loop outside of the uh, educational progress that they could have Mm -hmm. rather than the one that we wish them to have. I'm interested in this idea that teachers are really uncomfortable to talk about race. And I read a paper that you wrote around the use of children's literature to study the ideas of race and gender. Um, it involved some some white female pre-service teachers. And and from what I read, it's, it really was this, they were comfortable, as you said, talking about ra- uh, class. But when it came to race, they didn't really want to get into it. Uh, what were Maybe you want to talk about that study and what you found from it. Yeah, so um, so with that work, we um, worked in a book club session, right? So I had teachers read these four different books um, focused on black female counter-narratives. And so they were stories about um, sexuality, hair, um, agency, and skin color, right? All things that typically... Black women are often, in some ways or another, either marginalized or demonized for. So in terms of, like, agency, you'll often hear the sort of narrative of the angry Black woman, right, Mm -hmm. rather than, like, someone who's assertive, right? It's assumed aggressive over assertiveness. So they read these texts. Um, And so the four books were One Crazy Summer, which was the book focused on agency, No Laughter Here, Black as a Berry, and nappy hair. And what my participants did was universalize the text in a way in which they could insert themselves so that they didn't have to talk about race. Mm -hmm. So a book like nappy hair, which in just in title alone (laughs) (laughs) would assume that uh, these white women didn't fit. But what they did was they read it and said, oh, it's a book about self-love. It's a book about accepting your hair for what it is. I understand hair issues. And so this book had a lot of uh, implications for my life. Now, the book itself talks about um, the ways in which, again, Black women are seen as not being articulate, not being smart, that all they're seen for is the fact that they have this nappy hair and that they need to be controlled. They <laughs> missed, they steered over all of that and just said, it's a book about self-love. Right. That's problematic, right? And part of the reason why that's problematic is outside of the book club arena in which we talked about these texts, these uh, participants spoke to in volume about how they didn't have any people of color in their life. Mm-hmm. The only people that they knew going to school only people that they knew working with, only people that they have interacted with have all been white, which means they have never even encountered or heard a story like nappy hair. And so it was hard for them to even consider the fact that it, that they didn't fit it. Right. And sounds like, um, if and so, I'm sorry. <laughs> no, go ahead. No, go ahead. I was going to say, so part of what happens when we talk about narratives or we talk about the ways in which teachers interact with their students is to sort of get at 
well, how often outside of your classrooms are you interacting with people who share a very different history, different experience than you do? And if the answer to that question is, in my social time or at church or whatever the case may be, or even in my community, I don't see it. I don't in- interact with these people. And the only thing I know is what I hear from media or what I have read or people stories people have told about me. Those ideas just sort of lodge in there and then they're imbued. And then we get into our classrooms and they show up, right? Um, we There's studies that show how teachers have fear over five-year-old black boys. They're five. <laughs> but the sense is that they see them as the black males that they hear about, right? right. Um, and, and that's a problem when we can't, outside of like creating communities that are more diverse, how do we sort of break those narratives that tell incomplete stories about the quote-unquote other? Right. And it sounds also like you're advocating for people to be comfortable to speak about race issues, but in order to be comfortable about it, they almost need to see them. It's almost like they're blind to them, whether that's conscious or unconscious. So it's a, mm-hmm. it's kind of a you see them first or you you become conscious of them, and then you can work on being more comfortable with, with having these conversations, which is probably linked to the, to the earlier question around tension in the United States. If we're not actually seeing this and, and addressing it, um, how are we going to deal with it? Exactly. Exactly. Um, yeah, it's it's one of those things where I think oftentimes what I try to, outside of the teachers, just people in general, that I try to sort of encourage people to think about or push them to think about is, well, what was your experience? Like, think about you first. It's hard to think about somebody else before putting yourself in a position of like the third eye being super conscious of where you're coming from, being super aware of who you are, what those, what those uh, constructions mean to you. So what does it mean to be raced? What does it mean to be classed? What does it mean to be gendered for you? Um, And then once you can do that and you, then you have the conversation with someone else, you're, you have like a, a little bit more of an opening of, oh, hmm, <laughs> your experience isn't mine. Mm-hmm. And then you have the conversation again and you're like, huh, your experience isn't hers and it's not his. Interesting. And then the more and more we do that, the more and more we can get to a place of, I recognize that experiences and people cannot be essentialized. Mm-hmm. And so now that I am more conscious of this or more aware of it, I can do a better job as an educator. I can do a better job as a supervisor in whatever context or professional field you're working in. I can do a better job as a politician. And hopefully, ultimately, that leads to us doing a better job as a society. Um, Yeah. Creating a society that is more inclusive and that recognizes some of the barriers to to some people having a fair shake. Yep. Inclusivity, I'm sorry. I'm, I get so excited talking about this, but <laughs> inclusivity is also difficult too when people don't feel comfortable sharing their experience right. or talking about um, talking about differences or talking about um, 
things that are unknown to them, right? Um, and so we have to get comfortable being uncomfortable because there's growth in that discomfort. There's growth in the fact that, like, this bothers me, but I'm going to come out better on the end. Mm-hmm. And so we also have to be able to open the door for people to ask what they don't know, right? Because we can't, we can't teach what we don't know. And so if someone doesn't ever, like, ask me or attempt to get to understand the perspective a little bit better, then we're always going to sort of run in the same circles that we're still running in. So it sounds like there's also, there's already some practical things that you would, you, you might say to a teacher who's looking to create a more inclusive classroom to make sure that those voices Mm -hmm. are heard. Some of it sounds like um, listening sounds like getting outside of your comfort zone, just recognize that things. Are there any, are there any other tips or are there any other ways or first steps that you would give to a teacher who who is becoming more conscious of this inclusivity or perhaps the fact that, that the dominant narrative or, or that there are some students who can't see themselves in their class? What would you say first steps kind of going forward? Yeah, um, I think first steps is being willing to be vulnerable, mm. right? Um, a large part of teaching or even working in such a social field, whether it be social work or you're a therapist, whatever the case may be. Like if when you're in a sort of social, a very social space and a very personable space, you have to be willing to be vulnerable. Um, And so that's step one, right? Like open yourself up to the critique, open yourself up to the idea that you don't have all the answers, open yourself up to not knowing open yourself up to the fact that a student's going to tell you like, this doesn't work for me and be okay with that. Right. Like there's, if a kid knows that something doesn't work for them and let it not work for them and figure out what does. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I often have this conversation with my, my students where it's um, they can make the accommodations for students with learning needs, but making the accommodations for a student with, sexuality needs, gender needs, race needs, whatever, that to them seems almost impossible because, as they tell me, rules matter. Hmm. Um, so if it's something like, and I, and I like to just use this example, if school policy says you have to wear a belt and you know a kid doesn't come to school with a belt <laughs> almost every day, mostly because he just didn't have a belt at home, is it more productive and conducive to that student to suspend him? Or is it, would it be easier for a teacher to spend maybe $2 at a store somewhere and get the kid a belt so that he can stay in school? Right. right. So um, that it's one of like, you have to, I think first steps are vulnerability and being willing to, to say like, okay, what's more important here? my, position of of power or my position of like I can empower the student to continue forward and to move forward um so there's that and that's like a bigger goal but um other practical sort of things that can happen in the classroom outside of using literature that is truly authentic to the students in the classroom um a book that often I see teachers use is Snowy Day by Ezra Jack Keats and it's a great book but the issue with the book is it's a story that can apply to any child. The character happens to be a, a kid of color, but 
it's a, it's a story that applies to, that can apply to anyone. It's not a counter narrative. So how can we find stories that actually like bring our students into the text that say like, oh, I have experienced this. This is something that like is unique to me. I can write about this more. My ability to inference a text about, um, there's a book called Cornrows. There's my ability to inference a text about Cornrows is so much easier for me to do and I can do it well versus you giving me a book about a, a kid who treks in the snow, mm-hmm. right? We would see so much progress, if, uh, so much different progress if the tools and the resources that we gave to kids exemplified or mirrored their experiences. Mm-hmm. And that, again, requires vulnerability. It would be really hard for a teacher who doesn't know the experience of that book to want to use it in their classrooms. Do you have any tips for gaining that perspective outside of seeking people? Um, do you, do you, do you advocate or do you tell some teachers when they're coming into a new community to, I don't know, get out in the community, find kind of be inside of and, and, and kind of participatory in that community, not just of the school, but I'm talking about the actual places around the school where the kids come from. Yep. Um, to participate in the neighborhood, to see what's there, right? Um, You can't just show up to work and leave (laughs) because that, that does a disservice to our kids. Like our kids would want to see us participate in their neighborhoods, to participate in their lives. That creates the trust and rapport that all teachers would love to have and to see with their students. But if we make a choice to escape those moments or to not be there in those moments, it's really hard to learn what their experiences are like or what their day-to-day looks like. Um, and, and in that, we want to think about transformative practices, right? Like if we can see that the community is sort of um, it's a food desert in a sense, some, there are some places here in America and other places in the world that still have like pockets where there are you know, no grocery stores or something. There's no available line of being able to get to food easily. Right. You can see that. Like, how can you use your political prowess to mobilize, to, like, mm-hmm. make sure that there is something that exists in that community for those families so that those families, those kids are nourished, mm-hmm. that they are receiving what they need so that they can be productive um, citizens in this this society and this world. Yeah. Uh, I just love this idea that you have that it starts at school, but it's so much bigger because I think all of the changes end line lead to us having a better society, um, a better country, no matter where you live. And yeah, just having uh, a more equal society. I think that this is great. Yeah. Like we can teach. I'm sorry. (laughs) (laughs) No, I keep getting up. Um, (laughs) We can we can teach students how to be political agents early, right? right? And being political doesn't necessarily mean like what you're who you're voting for or what party you're voting for or how you're voting, right? It means having a voice. It means being able to sort of speak to what you know is necessary for for society to thrive. Right. And we can teach that to students without imposing or indoctrinating anybody we can teach them how to utilize their voices to mobilize 
areas. And that's what we want to see. And that's, that's what's missing from schools is this ability to be able to teach our students how to use their voice so that they can move beyond just taking a test, but they can actually contribute to their communities, to their world. Yeah, that's a big deal. I'm going to move into some questions around education more generally. I'm going to start. Yeah. Is, there, is there something about education that you believe is true that most people or a large percentage of people would disagree with you on? Ooh. <laughs> um, I think what I just said, that education or teaching is political. And um, I think oftentimes the pushback on that is people assume political to mean a party alignment. But in actuality, it's just about how your voice is used mm-hmm. to um, create citizens. We often hear teachers say, I really just want to go into how to be good citizens. And then when you ask them, what does it mean to be a citizen? What I often hear is, well, you know, so that they know how to vote and to get a job. <laughs> but that's not citizenry, right? Like voting and getting a job isn't citizenry. Citizenry is using our voice in order to better the public good. And it doesn't necessarily relate to I put money in my pocket through working or that I vote for a particular party or a particular person. So I think that's probably something that a lot of people might push back with me on. I don't know if it would necessarily be in disagreement, but I definitely get pushed back on the idea of um, education or teaching being political. Right. When you think of the term master teacher, who or what comes to mind and why? Um, I believe a master teacher to be someone who is creative, who is willing to move outside the bounds or move outside sort of the, the constrictiveness of a textbook. Um, someone who is willing to get out into the community and work with community agents or multiple sort of um, stakeholders in the, in a school. I believe a master teacher to be someone who engages with parents on a, on a level of personal from a personable space rather than just a professional, I'm teacher, your parent. Um, I believe a master teacher to be someone who can see an issue, see a problem, and has multiple ways of uh, creating a solution for it. I think a, a master teacher is someone who, who is crafty, who is masterful, who really sort of understands what their role is as a teacher and is willing to not only continue to improve themselves, but they're willing to work with um, novice teachers, teachers who are induction phase, who are willing to work with teachers who are um, working towards certification. And I, and I think all of this mostly because um, I feel like I gave my why in my response, but um, I, I think the reason why these are, sort of indicators or markers of a master teacher sort of point towards like what our greater goal is for education, right? Like if we can sort of outline what our greater goal is for education and granted that goal 
shift depending on who you're talking to. But I think everyone is sort of stands at we want our students to walk away from their K-12 experience ready for the world, ready for what's outside of their classroom confines, outside of what's standardized, outside of what happens to be within the textbook. And I think when master teachers sort of embody practices of I work with the community, I stand as a partner with parents, I choose to be creative, I am crafty, I can find solutions, their goal is to make sure that those students are able to, quote unquote, attack the world with like so much vigor and vibrancy that they can do whatever they want. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's a great answer. Um, usually I ask if teaching was easy, what it would look like and reduce, but I think you've really, you've really nailed that. I think that we've gone over that. So I'm going to skip on to, do you have a favorite failure or a favorite success that you felt helped you learn an important lesson either in your life or in education? Yeah. Um, so a friend of mine from undergrad, he used to uh, tell me how baseball, he's a baseball player, baseball is a game of failure because even if your batting average is 0.381, right, that only means you're successful 38% of the time. Yet we see that as, as great, right, for a baseball player when they have such, that, that that's their batting average. Mm-hmm. Um, and so he, he used to go on this bit about, like, failure is the success that when we sort of have moments of like, well, that wasn't great. There's success in that, right? Like, because the success is, well, it wasn't great, but I now know how to improve it. I now know how to move forward. Um, And so I think for me, my greatest failure is often hearing students tell me that didn't work for me. Or when I read the comments at the end of the semester where it's like that assignment wasn't, wasn't very good. Um, and, and I find success in that only because it sort of empowers me to say, okay, well now I can do something different. It also empowers me in the sense that like they, they felt comfortable enough to be able to speak to it, that they felt comfortable enough to speak up on it. Um, so yeah, I think, so I, I just sort of align successes and failures to be this, uh, this unison of there's no real failure. There's success in the failure do you uh let's get into some some shorter questions i guess uh the answer isn't usually as long but it could be uh do you have a favorite education related app or website um i don't but i appreciate vocabulary um one because i used to work there (laughs) but two um i find that um the use of of hip hop, the use of of rhyming sort of pattern of engaging students in that way is very beneficial, right? Like we know that music, we've always known this, that poetry and music has implications for how students sort of hold on to knowledge. But the fact that it like exists in a way where like students are able to um, work off of that or hold on to that in a way that might be meaningful to them is inspiring to me. Do you have a book that you quote, refer to, have marked up, or give away the most? Dream Keepers. 
dreams. By Gloria Latin Billings. What's that one about? Um, it's about culturally relevant teaching. Uh, her theory on culturally relevant teaching, she is the sort of uh, pioneer of it and outlines the three tenets of it, academic excellence, um, cultural competence, and then building a socio-political consciousness in your classroom. And so it's a book that I use when I teach. Um, it's also a book that I refer to, I refer back to often just because it sort of helps me to grow my idea of how do we use or come to understand our narratives differently so that we can have a more complete socio-political understanding of what happens in our classrooms. Mm -hmm. Is there something that you do every day or most days that keeps you well and healthy? Yoga. <laughs> lots and lots of yoga. Yeah. Mostly power yoga, but lots and lots of yoga. Nice. Um, at least four times a week. Wow. Is there an organization or a person who inspires you? Uh, so I, uh, I like to align myself with curriculum theory, which is very different from curriculum as a as a text as a bound set curriculum theory is more about how do we understand curricular constructions of the self right so a lot of the things that we've been talking about where it's um, more theorized than it is practical uh, so a conference and organization that I do align myself with is the Bergamo conference on curriculum theory and classroom practice mm -hmm. uh, so a lot of the theorists uh, that are part of that or a lot of researchers, academicians, whatever that I often reference are also part of this organization. That's great. Now, what's next for you? What are some of the questions or projects that you're working on that we can look forward to seeing? Yeah. So, uh, well, as I just mentioned, how yoga is a big part of my life. I am uh, working on a project project. Uh, one with Natalie Kiefer on mindfulness um, and how do we utilize mindfulness with our pre-service teachers uh, to support them in how they think about classroom behavior or how they're thinking about how they're interacting with parents or how they're interacting with their colleagues, right? Like how do those sort of practices of mindfulness better them as educators or as professionals? Um, so there's that, but then I'm also working on how do we use the practice of yoga and yogic principles, and this is outside of the work with uh, Dr. Kiefer, but how do we use those yogic principles to understand who we are, right? Like how do we sort of unpack or unlock our notions of self to create our curricular construction of our race, class, gendered, religious being, um, and what implications those hold for our classroom practice. So a lot for me has, um, recently you've been rooted in yoga and self-identity and awareness and how those things manifest for teachers in the classroom space. That seems really interesting. What are some of the best ways that people can connect with you? Let's say they want to uh, keep up on some of your research and some of your work. Um, how would, how would, yep. how would you follow along? Yeah. So um, I have a, <laughs> I have a website and an Instagram uh, use for the project that I just talked to you about. It's called Yoga for, it's number four, Yoga for Social Justice. Um, and 
So I use my Instagram, my Twitter, and I have a website that's being developed around that, which will um, eventually include some curriculum and, and things of those nature that allow for teachers, again, to start to explore their the self, right, and how those have implications for what they do in the classroom. Um, and then also people can email me at Valin, V-A-L-I-N dot Jordan, J-O-R-D-A-N at Louisiana dot E-D-U. That sounds great. I want to thank you so much for speaking to us, for sharing uh, some of your work and for giving us some really practical things that we can do uh, to improve our classrooms. Thanks again. Thank you. That was my conversation with Dr. Val and Jordan. Before you go, I'd like to recognize that the land where this interview took place is a sacred place that has a long history of human existence. This land has helped people like the Cree, Salto, Nisitapi Blackfoot, Métis, and Nakota Sioux live well for thousands of years. Let us continue to live well and to respect this land. Thanks. We'll be back soon with our next episode.